Today on the Sunshine Economy, Russia's war in Ukraine and its impact on countries with close ties to South Florida. I actually think Israel has been short-sighted here. This is a time for Israel to stand up. We feature a conversation with two foreign policy experts recorded live last week at the Festival of the Arts Boca. I'm Tom Hudson. American military might, oil, Russia and Latin America, and international trade. We don't have to theorize about what happens if the world descends into competing trading blocks and free trade fails. It's all ahead on a special Sunshine Economy. Welcome to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public radio. Today's program is a departure from our usual tight focus on the South Florida economy and the people shaping it. War has broken out in Eastern Europe. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is felt here, certainly with higher gasoline prices, but also the impact on countries with close ties to South Florida. Last week, I hosted a conversation with two global foreign policy experts for an evening at the Festival of the Arts Boca. Dr. Richard Haas is president of the Council on Foreign Relations, an independent nonpartisan think tank and educational institution. Admiral James Stravitas is a retired four-star naval officer and South Florida native. He was born in West Palm Beach. We appeared on stage in front of a live audience in Boca Raton. The Meisner Amphitheater was bathed in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. It's terrific to be here. The Festival of the Arts. Richard, Admiral, welcome. Thank you. Thank Palm you. Beach County. Yeah. Great to be here. Now, we should point out the color scheme is no mistake tonight. Blue and yellow. That's right. Let's start here, Admiral. Should the United States and Europe stop buying energy from Russia? I think so. Um, and... Uh, and I have, um, I, I have felt the administration has done a good job of working through options, of trying to control, if you will, the vertical ladder of escalation. But if we're not prepared to go that step, which I think takes sanctions from kind of seven or eight out of ten and ramps it up to nine plus out of ten, Um, What else are we waiting for at this point would be my reaction. Richard? Well, the United States stopping purchases of Russian energy is extremely modest in its its impact, just given how small the amounts are. Europe's much more significant. The problem is, given European policy over the last two decades, they've allowed themselves to grow extremely dependent on it. So there's no short-term uh, one-to-one substitute. And it's still winter in Europe. So this, almost like a super tanker, his department can't turn on a dime, either can energy policy. And I actually think you know, we can do these things, at least the U.S., much harder for Europe uh, to do it. And then it, we really need a serious conversation about what does energy security policy look like in the age of climate change? How do, we, how do we balance the two? But we've allowed ourselves, in particular, Europe's allowed itself to become uh, so deeply dependent in a way that uh, it hasn't constrained Russia, but it sure as hell constrained us. 
energy supply in the United States wouldn't be threatened by a decision to stop buying Russian oil. Energy prices, however, altogether another gamble. Oil over $110 a barrel already. Gasoline here in Palm Beach County, you're lucky to find it under $4.5 a gallon, Admiral. The United States prepared economically for that kind of decision if they were to follow your advice and stop buying Russian energy. Here in the United States, we get about 7% of our hydrocarbons from Russia. We could easily substitute that from our own sources, frankly. We could also think about other more interesting arrangements globally, which would backfill it. What we ought to be doing for our European colleagues is, once we get past the I told you so moment, of, uh, you know, paragraph one, don't build Nord Stream 2. Uh, once we get past that somewhat pleasurable moment, then we need to get to, okay, how can we help you rebuild this energy supply? And let's take gas, by the way. Gas as in natural gas. Sometimes commentators act as though, uh, oh, if uh, Putin turns off the taps, you know, the lights are going to go out in Europe. That's not what's going to happen. Um, in terms of total energy, natural gas, for example, is 20 percent of European energy. If you grant that Putin supplies, let's call it 50 percent of it, keep the math easy, he's got control of 10 percent of the natural gas going to Europe. I think that can be made up uh, from the Gulf. And, you know, we could get in a long conversation about who has signed up and who has leaned back in the Gulf. Point being, yes, it would be painful. Richard's exactly right. It will be a bigger swallow for the Europeans. I think they are waking up to the dangers of Vladimir Putin, and I think they're probably getting close to being willing to do this. Richard, the other significant foreign policy question faced by the Biden administration, military leaders, and NATO is whether or not to put a no-fly zone and enforce a no-fly zone around Ukraine. Should it? Should NATO put a no-fly zone over Ukraine? In a word, no. I understand the frustrations, the temptations, but people need to understand what a, a no-fly zone entails. It sounds very almost mechanical or antiseptic, but you need to not just deny the other side's ability to fly, but in order to do that, you have to assert your own ability to control the airspace. In order to do that, you have to make sure they, are not, they do not have weapon systems hundreds of kilometers inside their own territory that could reach your aircraft. In order to create and sustain safely a no-fly zone, we would essentially have to initiate military operations against significant chunks of Russian territory. So we should just understand uh, what we are doing. That would mean war. And it's the sort of direct military action we avoided for four decades during the Cold War, mm -hmm. which is one of the principal reasons the Cold War stayed cold. It's a degree of escalation we ought not to do. No, uh, because I believe it would be incorrect to do this. What we, th then what we need to do is press our foot on the gas pedal in terms of getting Ukraine the capabilities it needs to minimize Russian access to, to Ukrainian airspace. And that's what ought to be going, uh, you know, we have, if you will, imperfect but not bad substitutes to asserting a no-fly zone, and that's what we ought to be bringing about. I'll bring it back to equipment in a moment. You have used a no-fly zone. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think I can reliably say I'm the only person in Palm Beach County <laughs> who has actually 
implemented a no-fly zone. Uh, I did it in uh, 2011 over Libya. Richard is exactly right. In fact, we should send him to the Pentagon. Uh, it is hard. It's complicated. It's dangerous. And that's when you're going up against a fourth-tier military capability. Uh, to put it in the skies over Ukraine facing well-trained, not as good as ours, but well-trained Russian pilots and also their extremely capable surface-to-air missile systems, notably the S-400, big range, very, very big step to take. Second point to conclude on this, remember who is implementing the no-fly zone. At the end of the day, it's not you know, grizzled old Admiral Stavridis, the supreme allied commander in NATO. The people actually implementing it are like 27 years old. They're fighter pilots. They're up there. This is not Tony Blinken flying around in a jet, you know, weighing all the consequences. This is Goose and Maverick in the mm. cockpit, okay? They are right out of the Top Gun, right out of the volleyball scene in Top Gun. Their counterparts are exactly the same. These are young people. They are imbued with real passion about their mission and the chances of a deadly miscalculation that could walk us down the road to war are significant. So I would counsel, there's a lot we can do. Richard outlined a few things. We should do all those things. No-fly zone, blinking red light from my perspective. 30 more seconds on it. The other reason is, from the get-go, Putin's narrative is that Russia is a victim and that this is necessary because of NATO and for Russian security interests. I don't want to do anything if I can help it that reinforces this false narrative about where we are and how we got here. I want to keep the focus on Russian aggression, the decision to launch what I would call a war of choice against a country which didn't deserve it. I don't want to do things where Putin can then go to the Russian people who at the moment are not supporting this, as best we all can tell, and say, I told you so, this was all about East-West, NATO, Russia. I don't want to go there if I can avoid it. How about the calls then for Polish air force assets to be sent to Ukraine? Two thumbs up. Backfilled then do it today. by That's... NATO equipment into Poland. I disagree with them. I do it yesterday. <laughs> yeah, it would be... Um... And by the way, let's do the math here, because a lot of people have this um, view that, oh, the Russian military is on a par with NATO. They are not. Um, we outspend Russia 15 to 1. And by the way, the German defense budget just surpassed that of Russia. We have 25,000 combat aircraft in NATO. Russia has about 5,000. It's a 5 to 1 advantage. The point is, we can afford to send those MiG-29s or the aircraft. They're very capable, not super modern, but could be extremely significant on the battlefield. Think of that big convoy kind of on the outskirts of Kiev. That's like the biggest target on the planet Earth. Turn MiG-29s flown by Ukrainians loose on that. If we gave them 30 from the Poles, we would then backfill with 30 F-16s from the United States. We have that capacity. We have that inventory. We have this technology. We should do that, like I agree with Richard yesterday. Should the United States commit soldiers 
to more border NATO countries, Poland, Romania, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, and others. Well, he was the Supreme Allied Candidate, which, by the way, is the coolest title in the, uh, I mean, really, it's, it's really hard to sit here. And, uh, sit. But uh, the answer is yes. Look, the, um, we were worried initially that Putin would go through Ukraine. A lot of people worried like a knife through butter. And then once he gained some momentum, he might not stop. Now we're worried that a cornered, frustrated Putin might be thinking about widening the conflict again in order to change the complexion, or if he finally gets to where he may want to get to in Ukraine to do it. We, are, we ought to discourage that. And that means now beefing up NATO per se, obviously the parts of NATO that touch on, uh, come closest to, to, to Russia in the, the Baltics. So that, that to me is not even a close call. NATO is a defensive alliance. We ought to be taking steps to enhance its defensive capability. And again, we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be waiting. I, you know, you can always talk yourself out of doing things. It's provocative. Mm -hmm. No, we do not. We are not provoking. This ought to be, and again, uh, Putin has, has revealed himself. We should have no illusions about who he is. We ought to be taking steps to get him to recalibrate. To the admiral, soldiers on the ground and sailors Yeah, on the I was going to say it, it's more than, you know, troops to the border. It is, um, and I'll give you some specifics. We should move six brigade combat teams, 1,000 to 2,000 troops, into Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Romania. We ought to bring a three-star corps headquarters and put it in Poland. And we ought to take our... Four Arleigh Burke destroyers currently home ported in Rota, Spain, you know, like a thousand miles away. Move them forward. I like home porting them in Haifa, Israel, or I'm Greek American, put them in Athens, both of which I think would welcome them. Get the naval piece forward. And last point look north. Putin is seized with the Arctic. Start patrolling there, start moving assets up there, increase surveillance. Point being, Put everything around Putin because that's everything he doesn't want. Show him that. In the 1990s, the United States pledged it would not get involved in the Balkans. It did get involved in the Balkans. President Biden has pledged that it, it will not send armed forces to directly to fight Russians. In Ukraine. In Ukraine. Are we setting ourselves up for a similar situation, similarly where an administration has to go back on a pledge of using force. If you ask me, no, the decision in the Balkans, you can think it was wise, you can think it was wrong, was based upon the uh, take on the conflict at the time, that it was more, had large dimensions of a civil war. Mm -hmm. And that people were worried that this was not the sort of situation where we could insert U.S. military forces and have it be worth it. At the end, we, we, we felt compelled to uh, after uh, various violations of international arrangements. We did in a very limited way, mainly from the air. And, and it, turned out, uh, it turned out surprisingly well at a limited cost on our part. This is qualitatively different. And again, uh, I agree with the president's decision. By the way, I think Jim and I would both think that I think the administration's done a good job in how they've managed this uh, crisis. And I thought the president was exactly right early on to take off the table direct American military intervention. I don't think it would have been credible 
to Putin, and I never want to threaten something that you're not going to do. We weren't ready for it as a country mm -hmm. in terms of and, uh, debate. I also, you know, I didn't think it made a whole lot of sense militarily because Ukraine hadn't been in NATO. We hadn't done the years and years of close work that he had done with NATO countries. So, again, I think it's both, it's important to get right what you're going to do and what you're not going to do. Mm -hmm. And I thought the president, you know, not doing that didn't mean you didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. And I think the president was smart. We're going to rule that out, but here's the, here's the things we're going to do to strengthen Ukraine. Here's what we're going to do with sanctions. Here's what we're going to do with energy. Here's what we're going to do with diplomacy. So he had a comprehensive policy uh, built around that. I thought it actually made sense. What the Biden administration has to do is steer a course on the one side is do nothing, just sit back and watch like we did in Rwanda, like we did in Srebrenica where 8,000 men and boys were killed in the Balkans. Do nothing. Obviously, we don't want to be there. On the other side of that passage is a war with Russia. We don't want to be there. But here's the good news. It's a Richard's a golfer. It's a pretty big fairway. There's a lot you can do in there. And so the steps that the administration is taking, some of which we discussed tonight, I think are about the right package as we sit here tonight on this balmy evening in South Florida. Could something change that? Yeah. Do we need at some point, maybe we're going to have to steer a little closer, take more risk on this side of the fairway next to risk of war? Maybe we will. I don't think we're there yet. I think we continue up the center path. You know, we... we appropriately wring our hands about the, the bad outcomes in Afghanistan and Iraq. Got it. I would argue our outcome in the Balkans was pretty good. When you look back at the 90s, the Balkans looked a lot like Syria does today. Hundreds of thousands killed, millions pushed across borders, societies blowing up, gang rapes, 8,000 men and boys, as I said, killed in Srebrenica. Today, most of those nations are in NATO or in the European Union, and when they have a dispute, they don't reach for a hunting rifle. They reach for the telephone to call Brussels and get a mediator. We can do this. There, I think there are some lessons from the Balkans, but we've got to stay in the middle of that fairway as long as we can. That's retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Travitas and Richard Haas with the Council on Foreign Relations in front of a live audience last week in Boca Raton. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Still to come, how Putin's war in Ukraine could impact U.S. relations in Latin America. If he's ever looking for ways to slightly get away from this, I think the Western Hemisphere might tempt him. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. Days before Vladimir Putin launched his war in Ukraine, a top Russian official visited three countries in this hemisphere, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. This is where we pick up our conversation with President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Dr. Richard Haas, and U.S. Navy Retired Admiral James Stravitas. This was recorded in front of a live audience at the Festival of the Arts, Boca. We should not overreact to it. We're a long way from... Uh, Russia, their Navy doesn't have the kind of global scope and scale. They can't afford to plunge money into rebuilding a, a rotten society such as you see in Venezuela. To them, Maduro is a kind of a joke on a sideline. 
Cuba presents more than anything a threat to its own people and, and crushes their standard of living. I would say with Russia, we ought to be monitoring what they're doing, but I don't see them as a, a serious threat that we need to be managing. They don't have the reach or the capacity to do anything serious here. But let me suggest one thing that I would not be shocked if it were to happen. If Putin is looking for ways, I'm, not, I'm just, he's clearly not yet, but if he ever does wake up and for whatever reason, because of military difficulties, economic sanctions and internal pressure, and the third might be the most important. If he's ever looking for ways to slightly get away from this, I think the Western Hemisphere might tempt him. And what he might try to do is, for example, increase Russian bomber presence in this part of the world as a way of saying, you've taken th done things with NATO close to my borders to threaten me and to create a kind of parallelism. I just think it's one of those things we should have in the back of our heads as a possibility. Already, Russia had said that it has not ruled out military deployments to the Western Hemisphere. Right. And I think, again, we have to decide, you know, what we want to signal and what we would react to, what we, uh, what we would want to avoid overreacting to, because it's not every Russian deployment military to the, militarily in this hemisphere is a replay of 1962. Right. So we just need to become, and if, if it actually became part of a much larger calming down of the situation in Europe, we might want to look at certain uh, trade-offs, again, with certain limits, certain parameters, but it's not something that I think would be a dagger necessarily aimed at the heart of American security. Now, it would be more like a butter knife aimed at us, but I would say um, I'm all for it in one level, which is that it's just wasted money for Putin. He's, he would if be, Russia he were would to deploy using, assets yeah, to Latin he'd be America. He'd using scarce resources to send his ships over here. Maduro would have his hand out to rebuild Venezuela. Um, I used to say about Hugo Chavez, you know, the great threat of Venezuela, who was buying extremely expensive Russian hardware, using his dollars, his petrodollars to do that. You know, he might as well have taken all that money, put it in a safe and dropped it in the ocean for all the good it was ever going to do Venezuela. So I, I, I don't lay awake at night worrying about the threat. Venezuelan oil is seen as a possible uh, fill for Russian energy in the United States, perhaps not yeah. necessarily the world. How should we think about that, Richard? Look, Venezuela has the, I think, unless my numbers are out, the world's largest proven reserves of oil, and it's basically yes. a massive, massive underproducer. Yes. Because of you know, what's, what they've done largely to them themselves. I think in places like Venezuela, there's two considerations. Is the kind of political change we want in the offing? Odds are not, it's, uh, unfortunately, anytime soon. Uh, and then secondly, we have a foreign policy need right now with energy. And it's not just Venezuela. I think we're going to have a, ser a similar conversation potentially about Saudi Arabia, conceivably one about Iran. Uh, you know, as they used to say, to govern is to choose. And at this moment, we've got to think a little hard-headedly about what our priorities are, what are the opportunities, what are the risks, what are the priorities. And again, if Venezuela are on the cusp of massive political change, it might be a different calculation. Uh, if Saudi Arabia are on the cusp of massive, massive political change, again, it might be different, but they're not. So we have to say, okay, these are the givens. We may not love them, but they're the givens. 
can, in that context, we, we derive something potentially useful and good here? If so, we ought to be exploring it. Along those lines, Admiral, if Russia were to be less potent post-war in Ukraine, if that's one of the outcomes, what does that mean for some of its satellites here in the Western Hemisphere, particularly Cuba? They will themselves be diminished. There'll be less resources to come at them. We got to remember what Putin has undertaken in Ukraine is incredibly expensive in terms of not just the lives that are being lost. And by the way, um, very reliable estimates that thus far, less than two weeks into this Ukraine war, the Russians have 4,000 killed in action. Very reliable. To put that in perspective for you, in the 20 years the United States was in Afghanistan, in 20 years, we had 2,000 killed in action. Russia is at 4,000 two weeks into this. But that's before you get to the money. And he is going to bleed money. And by the way, 70% uh, of his central reserves, the hard currency his banks had, um, is now locked up yep. in, under Western sanctions. So he's got a financial problem, and he will be peddling pretty hard to control the kind of broken toy countries he's assembled around himself, Belarus, however Ukraine comes out, Transnistria, this region of Moldova, Kazakhstan, a few others. Um, he's going to have pretty empty coffers coming up. With one exception, and the critical factor here could be China. Yeah. U.S. Navy retired Admiral James Trevitas and Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas in front of a live audience in Boca Raton last week. The conversation continues still to come. What about China, Russia's war in Ukraine, and relations with America? We have some leverage, and we ought to be thinking about how we can put together a modern U.S.-Chinese relationship. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Today's program, a little different than normal. We aren't living in normal times. A war in Eastern Europe, skyrocketing gasoline prices, and a lot of uncertainty about the global economy as it rebounds during a pandemic. China is one of the big uncertainties as it has tried to strike a balancing act between calling for peace talks and also criticizing the economic sanctions against Russia led by the United States. Richard Haas and James Stravitas have navigated the volatile waters of international relations for years. Stravitas is a retired four-star U.S. Navy admiral. Haas is the president of the Council on Foreign Relations. The two appeared last week at the Festival of the Arts Boca, where we spoke about Russia's war in Ukraine and its impact across the globe and here in South Florida. What China decides, it's in its self-interest. China's been trying to straddle this. Yeah. The foreign minister, state counselor, Wang Yi, came out with some very pro Russian language, but even that, I don't know, is that for public consumption? And then mm -hmm. privately, they're prepared to do a little bit more. I actually think this would be the time for the United States to think about, can we shoehorn China somewhat away and to be at least a, a to be less unhelpful or conceivably even somewhat helpful in this? Because this is not good for Xi Jinping, given his agenda right now. This is not, this wasn't on his agenda in what he wrote when he was writing Dear Diary. Uh, this was not his request for this year. 
And so the question is, can in any way we use that to shape Chinese behavior? Long shot, but certainly one worth looking at. I think it's actually a reasonable chance. Um, and, and I agree completely with Richard's idea, and we've had a couple of good conversations with senior folks along these lines. And I hear different things coming out, out of China. I, th I think they will ultimately buy Russian oil and gas, but they'll do it at a pretty favorable price for China. They'll extract concessions. I think they will allow Russian banks, which are going to be, I think, universally banned from the so-called SWIFT system, which is the mechanism by which money flows around the world. Um, when they leave that SWIFT system, China will graciously allow them to join this kind of Chinese mini-me version called the SIPS system. Point being, China will try and steer a kind of middle course. We're back to fairways, right? And China will not seek to completely endorse this behavior. On the other hand, they're not going to disavow it completely. I'll close with a thought for Vladimir Putin. And I don't give him advice, and I doubt he'd want my advice. But I would say if I were a Politburo advisor to Putin, I'd say, Mr. President, we need to be careful with the Chinese as follows. Uh, China looks north at Siberia, this vast land area the size of the continental United States. It's full of oil, gas, timber, fresh water, arable land, gold, diamonds, rare earths. It looks quite tasty. In fact, if the Chinese were my dog, they'd be looking at Siberia like a ribeye steak. It would look really tasty. And Mr. President, Putin, be careful you don't end up as the very junior partner in this relationship. That's a risk for Russia, particularly in an era where their choices have boiled down to China. So the Chinese foreign minister, Richard, has called China-Russian relations rock solid, is how they described it. What are some of the leverage points that you see the United States has to try to shoehorn China here away, I think, in the phrase that has been used here, especially given supply chain challenges that we're still dealing with in the pandemic, economic recovery, inflation. Let me say as an aside, anytime you publicly call something rock solid, it means it's not. Uh, <laughs> if it is rock solid, you don't have to call it rock solid, just a slight aside. Look, the U.S.-Chinese relationship has deteriorated significantly over the last few years. There's actually been con considerable consistency between the Trump administration and the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we now have to ask ourselves, let's say one other historical data point. Last week was the 50th anniversary of the Nixon-Kissinger trip to China, the Shanghai communique. And, and, and the whole geometry of that, if you will, was the United States and the Soviet Union uh, and China were part of this triangle. The United States and China moved closer together against their common enemy. Now, uh, it's been about five weeks since the Russians and the Chinese issued the statement when Putin went to the Olympics, and now we find ourselves more distant from both. We obviously can't get closer to Putin. The question is, can we get somewhat closer to China? I would say, yeah. I would say, among other things, we ought to be reiterating our support for the one China policy. We ought to, indeed, we could reiterate the Shanghai communique. Why not a fourth communique? Why wouldn't we sit down with the Chinese and think about what does a modern U.S.-China relationship look like? 
The previous communiques, the previously, were very honest about our differences. So where do we, where do we acknowledge and manage our differences? But where might we have some possibilities? Maybe Afghanistan is near where we can do something. Maybe there is something on climate change. Maybe there is something, the most recent report about COVID seemed to support the, the market thesis rather than the laboratory thesis. Maybe there's something more we can do there. We don't need an across-the-board relationship now any more than we needed one 50 years ago. But I, this, you know, this is why God invented diplomats. <laughs> this is a moment where we ought to get on our diplomatic bicycle and do a serious exploit because China needs us. Three more seconds. China needs us. If you're Xi Jinping, you've got a country that's growing slowly. You're coming out of COVID, but you don't have a formula to get out of COVID. Chinese vaccines are not good against Omicron. This fall, he has his big meeting. He wants to get his third term. We have some leverage, and we ought to be thinking about how we can put together a modern U.S.-Chinese relationship. China also needs the European Union as an economic partner. They do, and uh, this brings us to how do we deal with China as we go forward, and, and I agree, diplomacy, I think it's bigger than that. I think what, what is missing is a strategic plan that has a military component to it that says, okay, these are the types of systems, cyber, space, unmanned, maritime, that we need. It has a diplomatic component to include, for example, the idea of the quad relationship. This is India, Australia, Japan, the United States working together to balance. Diplomacy broadly, as Richard has said, I think it needs a tech component. We're in a a race in artificial intelligence, quantum computing. What are the incentives we can bring to the table in that regard? I think it needs a values component because we're going to have to square the circle of treatment of Uyghurs mm -hmm. with our desire to get a good outcome with Russia. So I think this moment really screams for a plan that has components in it along those lines to include diplomacy One other most component. assuredly. Economic. We are making a major, major, major strategic error by not participating fully in the economic arrangements that are coming to dominate the wealthiest part of the world, the Indo-Pacific. We helped bring them about, and then at the last minute we said, nah, we changed our mind, we're not going to join. This is a major own goal. You literally have a situation now where China wants to join the arrangements we helped design and negotiate. Right. This is nuts. One of the things we have to do is reshape the conversation in this country about why American participation in global trading arrangements makes sense. It makes sense economically. It makes sense strategically. It didn't show up in the president's speech the other night. We have got to get the American people, and this cuts cross-party lines. We have got to get involved in that part of the world economically, or it is the proverbial uh, three-legged stool resting on two legs. I couldn't agree more, and I'll, I'll just add, we don't have to theorize about what happens if the world descends into competing trading blocks and free trade fails. We don't have to guess what's going to happen. We watched that happen in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. And here in the United States, we created massive trade barriers, the Hawley-Smoot tariffs. We created these zones. We walked away from the League of Nations. We isolated ourselves. How'd that work out? Well, uh, you can drop a plumb line through the Great Depression to the rise of fascism to the Second World War. We need free trade. We need to be smart about it and protect ourselves. But without question, 
finding the right economic relationship with China needs to be part of that larger plan I spoke of a moment ago. Retired Navy Admiral James Trevitas, along with Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas at the Festival of the Arts Boca last week. You're listening to the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Still to come, how Russia's war influences U.S.-Israel relations. I actually think Israel has been short-sighted here. This is a time for Israel to stand up. I'm Tom Hudson. This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. Thanks for listening. Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is one of the few world leaders who has met with Vladimir Putin in person since the Russian president began his war in Ukraine. Bennett hopes to broker some kind of deal to end the violence. It places Israel at the crux of efforts to bring peace and focuses attention on relations between America and Israel. That relationship is important here in Florida, where 10 percent of the American Jewish population live. We spoke about Israel and the United States and Russia's war in Ukraine with Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas and U.S. Navy retired Admiral James Stravitas. This was recorded live last week at the Festival of the Arts, Boca. I'm happy to see anybody trying to talk to both sides. You know, President Macron of France has gotten some heat from various corners. Um, I applaud him. I think that trying to be an interlocutor in a moment like this, particularly with a, a leader like Vladimir Putin, who I don't think is crazy, but I think is deeply angry and bitter and capable of a wide variety of action. So I applaud both Macron and I applaud uh, Naftali, the Prime Minister of Israel. I see President Erdogan a kind of as a possibility Turkey. here yeah. of Turkey. So I think... Those missions are probably not going to be successful, but as Churchill said, you know, jaw, 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 talking is better than war, war, war. Right now we're in the latter. Look, Israel's one of a number of countries that's also straddling here. Uh, I put, you know, I mentioned, we mentioned China, uh, India is on that list, the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. And Israel's got various reasons for do it, two in particular. Uh, there's several hundred thousand, probably close to 200,000 Jews still in Russia. There's somewhere between two and 500,000 Jews in, in Ukraine, depending upon whether you're using the orthodox definition of who's a Jew or something more. Uh, so Israel has you know, major concerns, and the Israeli papers, by the way, are filled with talk about the next wave of, of uh, immigrants. And Israel has the geopolitical concern that Russia has emerged as the principal external power in Syria. And the Israelis and the Russians have had a rather intense diplomacy managing, shall we say, Israeli equities in that. The Israelis have been, as a result, very hesitant to condemn what Russia is doing. I think uh, there's been splits within the Israeli government. I actually think Israel has been short-sighted here. I think its relationship with the United States is its single most important bilateral relationship. Israel is a fellow democracy. This is a time for Israel to stand up, and I think it is disappointing. Admiral, I'd like you to uh, continue uh, along these ideas. The Israeli prime minister has pledged to keep trying between Russia and Ukraine to mediate. Uh, He has said talks with the Kremlin have, quote, the blessing and encouragements of all parties. 
You didn't expound what exactly that meant, so that, Richard, we may need to define some diplomatic speak there about what that means. Well, no one's against diplomacy in principle. It's only when you get to the details of an agreement. <laughs> diplomacy, per se, is, is, you know, is always good. But talk to us a little more about what you believe Israel's motivations may be in the role that the prime minister has been playing here uh, within the first couple of weeks of this war. They're looking for stability in the Middle East. Um, they are drawing closer to the Arab world, which is also uh, straddling in this particular scenario. They're entrepreneurial. They see markets. They see activity and engagement. And above all, they feel, I think correctly, that uh, they can play this role. And so for all those reasons, I'm comfortable with them going forth. However, the difference is President Macron has unequivocally condemned this, right. has sent French troops into Romania, is an active member of the alliance. Israel has not done yeah. that, and I agree completely needs to do so. And, you know, I've been to Israel too many times to count when I was commander of NATO, Israel was part of my responsibilities from military to military activity. I know Benny Gantz and Gabi Ashkenazi extremely well. I know the country well. I know the people well. I went there for the first time in 1979. Um, this is a moment when Israel needs to stand with us. How long does it have before it gets a little sideways with the United States? It, 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 it's already... That process is underway. It's, it's a mistake. If the U.S.-Israeli relation, I worry about it. I care passionately about it. But I worry about it because it, there's enough baggage in this relationship now, given the Palestinian issue, double standards and other things, without adding this to it. So I just think, again, it's short-sighted. At the end of the day, Israel knows where its most powerful, important partners. What makes it odd now is also there's no chance at the moment that diplomacy can succeed. You know, diplomacy doesn't succeed because of the talent of the mediator. Uh, diplomacy succeeds when the, the parties are willing and able to compromise, and they are not willing and able to compromise. Vladimir Putin's demands are such that no legitimate Ukrainian government could ever come close or would come close to satisfying them. Only a puppet government yeah. that, by definition, would be illegitimate could sign off on what he wants. But he wants, you know, when he talks about denazification, when he, and other things, demilitarization, these are not the demands you make when you want a negotiation to succeed. These are demands you make when you want to have a pretext for doing exactly what he's doing. So let's not kid ourselves. So for the Israelis, the French, the Chinese, at the moment, there's nothing fertile to work with. And the, the, pur the purpose of our policy, I would argue, in part, should be to get us to that point. Can you get there with helping Ukraine in various ways, with economic sanctions, hopefully with uh, energizing some domestic opposition in Russia? Can you get to the point where Putin would see negotiations, uh, plausible negotiations, as a less bad outcome? Then we could have a very interesting conversation with Ukraine about what might you put on the table? What, what is legitimate to put out there? Because uh, the purpose, you know, we do have the incentive of ending this, this war and this, this, this violence, but not at any price. So what, what, yeah. is there any area for some, some compromise negotiation? The answer is maybe, but we're not there yet. Yeah, and I think a good model, and we touched on it a few moments ago, is the Balkans. 
you know, there are big differences, but intractable conflict, mass migration, atrocities, great powers hovering around the sidelines and then getting involved. A lot of similarities, frankly. And at the end of the day, the Balkans were sorted without everybody being satisfied. Compromise has to occur, and we're, we're just not there yet. But you can sort of think about an outline of a deal if you thought your way through how this was solved in the Balkans in the 1990s. Retired U.S. Navy Admiral James Trevitas and Richard Haas with the Council on Foreign Relations recorded live last week at the Festival of the Arts, Boca. Still to come, the two foreign policy experts field some audience questions. Do you think Putin has gone off the rails? This is the Sunshine Economy on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. Today's program is a conversation recorded live last week at the Festival of the Arts Boca with President of the Council on Foreign Relations, Richard Haas, and James Trevitas, retired four-star Navy Admiral. After speaking about Russia's war in Ukraine and its impact on countries with close ties to South Florida, we took some questions from the audience. I am Jerry Warshaw from Piermont, New York. And my question is, are you concerned with the possibility of China moving on Taiwan in this crazy period of time? I I am not, um, and that may or may not surprise you, but some have the thesis that Xi will use this moment of distraction on the part of the West to make a move on Taiwan. I don't think that is in the cards. His agenda for the year includes getting reelected for a third five-year term, elevating himself into the pantheon of leaders of modern China, his view, along with Mao and Deng. Um, What he is not looking for is a, is a war. Second point would be the Chinese are not certain at this moment that they can overmatch the United States. They're not even certain whether we would fight or not. Policy of strategic ambiguity. I would see the, the threat to Taiwan as being three to five years off. It's not going to happen this year in my view. My name is Perry Berman. I live here in Boca Raton. Regarding President Biden's statement uh, that he will absolutely, absolutely not send any Americans into action in the Ukraine. Do you think it was wise for him to have put that out on the table for Putin to know instead of leaving it unknown? I think the president was right to take it off the table because, one, I don't think it was credible. Second of all, if you, someone before asked about Taiwan. If we had created questions of ambiguity about whether we'd go in to help Ukraine directly and didn't, the geopolitical consequences of not acting would have been far, far greater around Europe and around the world. So we took off the table what we weren't prepared to do, what lacked credibility, what lacked American support, and what we've done are all the things that we we can follow through on. And I think, and that's right, and as a result, we have not weakened American standing or credibility around the world. My name's Al Pesson, I'm from Delray Beach. All of the things that you're talking about in terms of how to affect the outcome assume a rational actor on the other side. Based on your experience and your observations the last couple of weeks, uh, do you think Putin has gone off the rails? I don't think Putin is crazy. I don't think he's gone off the rails. I think you can kind of drop a pretty linear line between his life as a KGB colonel, his bitterness, his anger at the dissolution of the Soviet Union, 
his view that the Warsaw Pact walked away from a relationship with post-USSR Russia to his sense of all the wrongs done to Russia in the intervening 20-plus years. Um, he's angry. He's bitter. But the reason he has launched at this moment is because he senses COVID and our distractions over that. He has come to the end of his rope with Zelensky, who he thought until uh, a, a couple of weeks ago he could batter around. Boy, did that turn out not to be the case. And he underestimated Ukrainian will and spirit, and he underestimated the responses of the West. So he's, he's landed himself in a very difficult place. Uh, no, I don't think he's crazy, and I don't think he's going to reach for a nuclear weapon to try and solve this problem. That was retired Navy Admiral James Stravitas and Council on Foreign Relations President Richard Haas answering audience questions during a live event last week at the Festival of the Arts Boca. You can find a podcast of this program and all of our programs. Search Sunshine Economy on your favorite podcast app. Joe Johnson is our technical director. Polly Landis is our booking producer. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. WLRN Public Media.